Let's get into the Word. Revelation chapter 11, beginning of verse 8. We'll actually read back to verse 7 to get up to speed on where we're at. We're in the middle of this 11th chapter, which deals with the two witnesses, which we believe are Moses and Elijah. And we saw last week, we'll read it again here in verse 7, that at the end of their three and a half years of ministry, the Antichrist kills them. Let's read verses 7 through 13. When they finished their testimony, the two witnesses, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit. Now the beast, the Antichrist, is a human being, but as we talked about last week, every indication from Scripture is that he will be personally indwelt by Satan. Satan can only be one place at a time. He has his demonic hordes all over the planet. But he himself can only be one place at one time, and during the tribulation it would appear that his abode will be within that human being known as the beast. And he comes up, that's why it says he ascends out of the bottomless pit. He will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. That's where we left off last week. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Now after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. In the same hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. Let's pray. Father, this is a very interesting passage. We ask that you would bless this time in your word today. Just uh, cause your Holy Spirit to teach us to feed us, to lead us, and guide us through this passage. Lord, give us insight and understanding and application, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, we saw last week they finished their testimony. In other words, their ministry, the allotted time that God had laid out for them, the three and a half years, had been completed. And then the Antichrist, who's been battling against them the entire time but unable to do anything about them because God has now finished his, their ministry here on the earth. He allows them to be slain by the Antichrist. And from the human perspective, it sounds like, well, why would God allow that? Man, isn't there any protection for his people? But as I've told you before, God is concerned with eternity, not the temporary, but the eternal. And the death of the physical body means very little to God because it's all about eternity, eternal life in Christ and the fact that we will receive a new, eternal, glorified, imperishable, incorruptible body that will never die again. So, and again, what the enemy intends for evil, God uses for good. So their dead bodies, verse 8, will lie in the street of the great city 
which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. So, what is this great city that is called Sodom and Egypt? They're two different locations, two regions known for their extreme evil. Sodom, which was filled with sexual perversion, destroyed by God as Lot and his daughters fled the city. Egypt, known for its uh, hundreds of years of persecution of the Jews, under the pharaohs, the slavery, the uh, brick-making, and so forth, resulting in the birth of Moses coming from God to be the deliverer of his people. But two very evil regions, Sodom and Egypt. And yet, we're told that this great city, where also our Lord was crucified, so it's actually Jerusalem, that will be the, the home base and the focal point of the ministry of these two witnesses for three and a half years, but people will be able to see them from all over the world because of the internet, social media, so forth. But God is calling here Jerusalem, Sodom, and Egypt. Interesting, isn't it? And the tribulation time when the temple is rebuilt, from God's perspective, Jerusalem is no more holy or righteous than Sodom or Egypt. And so, as we mentioned before, it might sound exciting to, to have the temple rebuilt at the beginning of the tribulation, but this is not the Messiah's temple which will be built when Christ comes back to rule over this world for a thousand years and we come with him. There will be a millennial temple built by the followers of Christ that will stand during the thousand years of the millennium. But this is the temple not of the Messiah. This is the temple built by Jews who have yet to recognize Jesus as Messiah and ultimately the temple that will be taken over by the Antichrist himself. So the rebuilt temple and the revived sacrificial system will not do anything to get the Jewish people closer to God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's man's effort to reach God. That's what religion is. Christianity, where God has reached out to man through his son Jesus Christ, that results in relationship. We enter into a personal relationship with God through his son Jesus Christ. Religion is man's effort to reach up to God, and it always falls short. So even though the Jews... Their religious system will be reestablished. It's not going to cut any ice with God. And so he still sees Jerusalem at this point, halfway through the tribulation, as the great city called Sodom and Egypt. Verse 9, Now, then those from the people's tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days. The world, the whole world, will be able to see their dead bodies lying in the street in Jerusalem three and a half days. Does that sound familiar? Kind of like Jesus, Matthew 12, 40, prophesied about his own death. He said, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And so these two prophets will lie in the streets for three and a half days. Also could be connected to the three and a half years of their ministry. We see these numerical connections. But again, as I've pointed out before, the time we're now living in 
is the only time since this was written 2,000 years ago where it would be possible for the whole world to be able to see their dead bodies lying in the street in Jerusalem. This couldn't have happened 100 years ago. It could have only happened within our lifetime as we've seen the, uh, the advent, the birth of television, which was in the late 1940s, less than 100 years ago. And then the birth of the satellite system, satellite networks being able to transmit television signals all over the world via satellite, now the internet. It tells you folks that we are living in the time when this will come to pass. The whole world, peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into a grave. So this is a further a desecration of these two prophets because especially with the Jewish people they require immediate burial to not allow immediate burial to the Jews is the ultimate desecration of a dead body that's why when Christ died on the cross Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea rushed to get his body from the cross and get it into the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea before the sun went down, before the Sabbath began, they would not have been allowed to touch the dead body once the Sabbath began. And they were determined to get Jesus buried that same day. That's a Jewish thing. It's very important to them to honor the dead by burying them as quickly as possible. If you're Orthodox, ultra-Orthodox, then you would definitely be in that camp. But now, verse 10, those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another, because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. And so to the evil, unbelieving people on the earth at this time, which will be the vast majority, in fact, it probably already is, to be honest, the murder of these two prophets is going to be like some kind, we have an antichrist, so now we have an anti-Christmas. You see? Can you imagine people being so happy? Actually, it's not that hard to imagine when you look around at what's happening in the world today. That they would be so joyous over the death of these two prophets of God that they would turn it into a Christmas-style celebration. A demonic Christmas where they're, they're making merry, partying, giving gifts to one another. Happy Dead Prophets Day! That's what we've got here. And again, there are those who already would like to see something like that happening. Mocking the Lord, mocking His people, wishing them dead. And we've seen already the massive celebrations in the Middle East when events like 9-1-1 happen or the, uh, the death and destruction of American embassies, American soldiers. They're burning flags, burning our presidents in effigy and so forth. And now that's even come to roost right here in our own country. If you remember, it wasn't that long ago during these riots in Minneapolis, Seattle, Portland, they're still going on actually, where they brought out guillotines in a couple places and did a simulated decapitation of President Trump, things like that. So we're not far at all from what we're reading here in the book of Revelation. Now it's interesting, it says, because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. How did they do that? By simply preaching the gospel of Christ and calling the people to repentance. But to the unbelievers, 
That was torment. They were tormenting those who dwell on the earth by telling them about Jesus Christ. Do we see any of that happening right now? Yes, we do. Of course, there's also, not to mention the fire out of their mouths didn't help either. <laughs> we saw that last week. But that was for the people who tried to harm them and come against them before their time. Again, we often spend too much time worried about what might happen, what could happen. And as we get older, we do have more health issues and so forth and perhaps become more concerned about our mortality. But again, we can look at these two witnesses as a tremendous example. If you look at them, the power, the authority that God gave them for three and a half years, nobody could touch them. And if anybody tried to touch them, they paid with their lives. But when God was finished with them, he allowed the Antichrist to kill them. But as we'll see in a moment, they will be raised again. It's just like you and I. No matter what may come our way in this life, particularly, I would say, as long as we're making an effort to walk with the Lord, to follow Christ, to, and the way we do that, we can't be perfect. We all stumble in many ways, James says in his book. The way to maintain a proper relationship with God is to make sure that we stay humble, and then when we do fail, when we fall short, when we sin, that we're quick to confess our sins and to repent before God, ask His forgiveness so that He can keep us in right relationship. Just like Jesus, when He washed the disciples' feet, He was teaching them a lesson. Peter says, no, you're not washing me, Lord. I'm too good for that. Old brash, rash Peter. Jesus says, fine, then, then you have no part in me. Oh, Peter says, well, then wash me all over. Let's go head to toe. Come on. I'll take the shampoo, the, the blow dry, the whole deal. Jesus says, Peter, you don't need that. You just need your feet washed. And, of course, in ancient Israel, they wore sandals. They had dirt roads. People's feet got dirty every day. And so they would have a servant in the home, in most cases, or whoever with the old low man or low woman on the totem pole was, that when you came home, they would wash your feet. Jesus was sending a message to the disciples that even though they'd been cleansed from their sins by their faith in Him, that as they walked through life on a daily basis, spiritually speaking, our feet get dirty. Do you ever feel that way? Just dirtied by the things of this world? Polluted, corrupted, defiled by the garbage that we see all around us? And again, some of that's our own fault. We perhaps partake of things we shouldn't partake of, watch things we shouldn't watch, and so forth. But we do need that daily cleansing. And that's how we stay in right relationship with God. Not by being perfect, because we can't be. One day we will be. Christ is going to perfect us when we enter into eternity. But in the meantime, we need to, to make sure to maintain a right relationship with Him, again, by being in the Word of God, being in prayer, being in fellowship with other believers, doing those things that promote spiritual health and spiritual growth. But these men tormented the people of the earth simply by telling them the truth. I find that kind of encouraging. Really encouraging, actually. Because I've certainly seen a lot of people who seem to be tormented by what I have to say. But I guess I'm in good company. 
Same thing happens with Moses and Elijah. And I'm sorry, there's an old expression, the truth hurts. But you know what hurts more than the truth? Deception. Lies. Being led astray. The truth is like the surgical instrument used to remove the cancer from your body or the diseased organ that has to go if you're to live. Fortunately, God has constructed us in such an amazing, miraculous way that there are a variety of things that can be removed and we can still live, right? And even nowadays, I'm amazed that they can take part of a person's liver and transplant it into someone else whose liver has gone bad and both people can live. Isn't evolution amazing? You know I'm being very facetious. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. But there are also things in our lives that need to be removed surgically by the Spirit of God, the sword of the Spirit, the Word of Truth, the Word of God, to keep us spiritually healthy. And I started out all of this by making the point that when we're walking with God and following Christ, we are protected. Doesn't mean that we won't ever get sick. Doesn't mean that we won't ever get injured. I just had a couple of light injuries this past week. I was cleaning some carpet at our home. Coming down the stairs, and my wife was helping me bring down the machine. As we got towards the bottom of the stairs, the machine went tumbling forward. I went tumbling with it. The machine landed on my hand. I now have one finger that looks like a grape. But it has nothing to do with my guitar playing. <laughs> it just hangs there. And then I also did something up here in the rib cage area. But it's pretty minor. And I've had a number of uh, motorcycle accidents, car accidents in my life. We won't talk about why. I've never broken one bone. I've never had a broken bone in my life. I'm not bragging. I'm just saying God does take care of his people. When I was out on the road at 18 years of age with my Christian music group, we'd gone on a tour across the nation. We had an accident. We were on a two-lane highway in Indiana, and they had just resurfaced it that day, and it was all kind of oily and slick. And then it was raining. We were on our way back from a concert at a church that we traveled to. And um, I think it was a raccoon. Some kind of animal ran out in the middle of the road. Being 18 years old, I'd only been driving for a couple years. I wasn't highly experienced. And we're driving an old 40 Econoline van where the, the motor sits right between you and the front here. And there's no weight in the back of the van. Anybody ever seen one of those old 40 Econoline vans? They were very unstable. And we had our sound equipment in the back, guitars, no barriers. Everything's just laying back there, right? And so when this raccoon or whatever it was ran across the road, being an animal lover, I slammed on my brakes. And then it was just like one of those cartoons where the, the wheel is just spinning all around, you know? It's like, next thing you know, we're on the side of the road, the van's flipped over, the windshield's busted out, and I reach up and I feel this... I thought it felt a big hole in the top of my head. It actually it was. It penetrated through the scalp all the way to the skull. 
and the warm blood was running down and my ear was partially severed. And I thought at 18 years old I was going to see Jesus that night. So we're laying there and I start singing some hymn or something. I don't remember what it was. But the, and of course somebody came along. They called for an ambulance. The long, make a long story short, I had 66 stitches in the top of my head. But the next day I was doing another concert. <laughs> and that's how it works. You see, until God's done with you, no matter what the devil tries to do to you, he can't succeed. He can't win. But when God is done, you might as well just give in to it and say, okay, Lord, I'm ready. It's going to happen when God wants it to happen. I was having this conversation with someone with regard to the COVID virus. At the end of the day, we're going to be here as long as God wants us to be here. And when he doesn't want us here anymore, we're not going to be here. Do we get that? It's that simple. I'm not saying you should be stupid, but we're all kind of stupid anyway. That's human nature. The fallen state, the fallen condition of man, we're all kind of stupid. But you know what? The more you hang out with God, the more you read his word, the more you fellowship with his people, the more you pray, the smarter you get. Did you know that? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All right. So here are these guys. The Antichrist has killed them. The people are celebrating because the people were tormented by them. And so we shouldn't be surprised when people get upset at hearing the truth. The problem is a lot of people then will back away. They'll back down. Oh gosh, I don't want people mad at me. I don't want people to not like me. I better just chill out. You know where that comes from? The devil. The devil's the one who gets, wants you to back down, to chill out, to compromise. He will bug you. He will harass you. And his goal, just like when he challenged Jesus, when Jesus was 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness of Jordan, by the Jordan River there, fasting, praying. And the devil says, if you'll just bow down and worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of this world. You don't have to go to the cross. You can have it easy. You can take the easy way out. Thank God Jesus didn't take the easy way out. It's amazing how many famous people, and my knowledge especially, lies in the area of the entertainment industry, musicians, singers. How many of them started out singing in church? Elvis Presley, Jerry Lee Lewis, Aretha Franklin, the list goes on. Whitney Houston started out singing in church, singing gospel music, raised in a Christian family and a Christian home. But along the way, they made a deal with the devil, whether they knew it or not. Well, this is all well and good, but if you want to really be famous, if you want to really make some money, if you really want a lot of people to listen to your music, then you need to go this direction, you see. That's how the devil works. He negotiates with us. You may not be aware that it's actually the devil negotiating with you, but it is. It can be your, yeah, your vocation, your job. And I've seen so many people that will set aside spiritual priorities, like maybe you're part of a church where you're really getting ministered to, you're really getting fed, you're really growing in the Lord, you're really 
becoming a servant of God. But then this other opportunity opens up. Well, I can't pass that up, really. Which one's going to weigh heavier in light of eternity? And I've seen it time and time. Or a relationship. People who happen to be single for whatever reason. They've been widowed. They've been divorced. What have you. And then they really get focused on God. And that's why Paul says, hey, if you can do it, it's better to remain single so you can focus solely on serving the Lord. It's hard for most people to do that. But if you can accomplish it with God's help, it's an amazing way to go. I see people, same thing. They're growing, getting stronger, more mature, really getting tight with God, really getting plugged into the church. And then somebody comes along claiming to be a Christian. Oh yeah, I'm a believer, you bet. They'll go to church with you, play the part, then you get married. They don't want to go to church anymore. They don't want to serve God. They don't want to follow God. Now you're hosed because you're, in an, you're unequally yoked with a fake Christian and all your desires to serve God have just gone out the window. I see it all the time. I've been doing this a long time, folks. I've seen it all. I've heard it all. I know how the enemy works. Not sure how I got there, but I guess God wanted me to say it. Remember how the, the evil men who illegally tried and convicted Jesus, the members of the Sanhedrin, the high priests, when they confronted Jesus and he dared to open his mouth and speak the truth. They screamed, they ripped their clothing, remember? They went nuts. Why, because Jesus was lying? No, because he was telling them the truth. I guess what I was trying to get at with all that was we're going to constantly be challenged to back down, to compromise, to give in. I mean, you don't really want to go through life with people mad at you, do you? No. But if it means... To be obedient to God means I have to have people mad at me, then I guess I'll just have to deal with it because I'm not going to disobey God. See how that works? See how that works? So that's my point. So, verse 11. After the three and a half days, you got to love this. <laughs> the breath of life from God. Remember what God did to Adam? He breathed into him the breath of life. Jesus breathed on the disciples. He said, receive the Holy Spirit. Do you know life comes from God? He is the author of life. And he can even take a dead body and breathe life back into it. The breath of life from God entered them, Moses and Elijah, we believe, and they stood on their feet. And not surprisingly, great fear fell on those who saw them. So just like the short-lived satanic celebration when Jesus was crucified. We've talked about this before. In fact, Carmen, who did the song The Champion, he passed away here just recently, sadly. But he's with Jesus now. That's good. The song The Champion, where he portrays it as a boxing match between Jesus and Satan. Jesus goes down on the canvas. Satan thinks he's won. But normally the referee would count one, two. But instead the referee starts counting backwards. Like when you launch a rocket, 10, 9, 8, and by the end of the count, 
Jesus is up on his feet and Satan is terrified. And so we see that same thing here. Their celebration is very short-lived, three and a half days. It reminded me of the time that Paul was apparently stoned to death, but then he wasn't. Acts 14, 19 and 20. Then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there, and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up. What do you suppose those disciples were doing when they gathered around him? Praying, right? He rose up and went into the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. So there you go. Stoned, beaten so badly that from all appearances he was indeed dead. I believe he was. And I believe that as the disciples gathered around him, just like what God is doing here with these two witnesses in Revelation, God breathed life back into Paul and he rose up and went on about his ministry. And so great fear fell on those who saw them. So even as the whole world were witness their death and their dead bodies lying in the streets, guess what? The whole world is also going to witness their resurrection. And it will scare them witless. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, and this is another cool thing, come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. And again, for those of us who are what we call pre-tribulation rapturists, we believe the rapture takes place just before or right at the beginning of the tribulation. This is the same language or terminology that's used at the beginning of Revelation chapter 4 where we saw John the Apostle, the Revelator, being called up to heaven with the same command, come up here. In essence, the two witnesses here are being raptured, caught back up. Contrary to what many people think, this whole concept of the rapture, raptus in the Latin Vulgate Bible, means to be snatched away or caught up. It's actually somewhat of a common occurrence in the Bible. Way back in Genesis 5.24, Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. He was not what? He was not here. God took him up. Enoch, without tasting death. And so Enoch is symbolic of that generation of believers who will be alive on the planet when Christ calls his church home. He was deemed righteous even as we are deemed righteous because of our faith in God, our belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, and the fact that we acknowledge that His blood has the power to cleanse us from our sins. 2 Kings 2.11 Then it happened as they continued on and talked that suddenly a chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire. That's something you don't see every day. Not the average garden variety earthly horse here. We've got a heavenly chariot of fire with horses of fire and separated the two of them, the two of them being Elijah and Elisha. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. Again, we see another guy here raptured, if you will, caught up to heaven without tasting physical death. And so we're told here that these two witnesses are told to come up here and they ascended to heaven in a 
cloud. Again, just like Jesus after his resurrection, Acts 1.9. Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, the disciples, the apostles, were there with him on the Mount of Olives. He's giving his final instructions. And when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. So this is actually something that we see throughout the scriptures. It's not some weird one-off type of a thing. 2 Corinthians 12, 2, Paul talks about himself in the third person. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a one was caught up to the third heaven. That's where God lives. The first heaven is the one we see above us. The second heaven is the dwelling place of angelic beings and fallen angels as well. The third heaven is where God himself dwells, and that's where Paul was caught up to. He says, I don't know if it was in the body or the spirit. I just know I went up there. 1 Thessalonians 4.17 Then we who are alive and remain at the coming of the Lord will be caught up together with them, those who have already died, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Revelation 4.1 that I referenced a few minutes ago. After these things, metatauta, after the things of Revelation 2 and 3, the seven churches of Asia Minor, representing the seven different churches down through the ages up until the present time. We've studied that already. After these things I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. Revelation 3.20, we saw how Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, opens the door, I'll come into him. Here we see a door standing open in heaven, welcoming us. The first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here. In fact, in 1 Thessalonians 4, it says that the Lord will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, the trumpet sound. Here in Revelation 4.1, we read about the trumpet. The first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, just like God says to the two witnesses here in Revelation 11, and I will show you things which must take place after this. After what? After the catching away of the saints. That's why chapters 2 and 3 are devoted to the seven historical periods in church history. And then beginning in chapter 4, we're told to come up here. We depart this world. We're with God in heaven. And now, here's what's going to happen after this. And that's what we've been studying all these weeks. All the things that will be happening after the church is caught up during the tribulation. So their enemies saw them. And as I pointed out already, no other generation in history would have been able to watch all these things happening from every part of the world. I really believe we are the last generation. So verse 13, in the same hour, there was a great earthquake. There have already been some earthquakes we've seen previously during the tribulation. Here's a great earthquake. A tenth of the city of Jerusalem fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. So one of many during the tribulation, this earthquake, and we see again throughout the scriptures, both Old and New Testaments, that whenever God's power is manifest here on earth, it usually results in an earthquake. When Christ 
died on the cross. Matthew 27, 50 and 51. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. So Jesus made the decision as to when his spirit would leave his body. Because he's God, he can do that. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. How could the veil in the temple possibly be torn from top to bottom? You could possibly imagine some of the priests getting together, grabbing the, the curtain at the bottom and through joint effort perhaps tearing it. Probably not. But how would it be torn from top to bottom? Because God reached down out of heaven and he tore it. And that was symbolizing that now all men, all women, through the Lord Jesus Christ, have access. What does that curtain separate? It separates the holy place where the priests are allowed to, to interact and go about their business from the most holy place, the holy of holies, where nobody's allowed except the high priest and only once a year. When Christ died on the cross for our sins, the curtain was ripped from top to bottom and God said, now you can come in to my presence through my son Jesus Christ. That's pretty cool, I think. Then behold, verse 51, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth quaked and the rocks were split. Now, uh, Stephen Austin from the Institute for Creation Research, ICR, California, founded by the late great Henry Morris, great creationist scientist, he documents 14 times in the Bible where... God's presence was manifested by an earthquake. Number one, day three of creation week. Number two, Noah's flood. Number three, destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Four, Moses on Mount Sinai. Five, Korah's rebellion in the wilderness where the earth opened up and swallowed all those guys. The fall of Jericho. The Philistine camp near Geba. Number eight, Elijah on Mount Horeb. Number nine, Amos earthquake of 750 B.C. Ten, the Qumran earthquake of 31 B.C. 11, the crucifixion that we just read about in Jerusalem, uh, April 3, 30 A.D. 12, the resurrection in Jerusalem, April 5, 33 A.D. So, that, yeah, there was an earthquake when Christ gave up his spirit. There was another one when he rose from the dead. And all these other graves opened up and people walked out. And then 13, the Jerusalem prayer meeting in the summer of 33 A.D., Finally, the prison at Philippi. Remember when Paul and Silas are in jail? And what are they doing? They're griping, they're complaining, they're bummed out. God, why did you let us get thrown? No, they were, what were they doing? They were singing, right? Praising God, remember? At midnight, Paul and Silas are in the Philippian jail and they're worshiping God, praising God. God sends an earthquake and blows open all the doors of the jail. Remember that? This is an interesting statistic. Current as of yesterday. March 13, 2021. During the last 30 days, there was one quake on this planet of magnitude 8.1. That's huge. Two quakes between 7.0 and 8.0. That's still huge. 18 quakes between 6.0 and 7.0. And 375 quakes between 5.0 and 6.0. That's in the last 30 days. What do we read in Matthew 24, 7? Jesus himself said, nation will rise against nation. Oh yeah, that's going on. Kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various or diverse places. 
Jesus said it would be like a woman in labor. The birth pangs get closer and closer together. They get heavier in intensity. And it's a documented reality that we're getting more and more earthquakes all the time. And more and more bigger ones. So what do we have here as a result of this earthquake? A tenth of the city fell. So one-tenth of the structures in Jerusalem will be destroyed by this earthquake. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed. Why God gives us this specific number? We know that seven is a number of perfection, completion. He's sending a message. It would appear to be God's retribution for the slaying of the two prophets. But 7,000 people will be killed. And then the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. Now we know that God has already appointed 144,000 Jewish evangelists. Then he sent the two witnesses to augment the ministry of the 144,000. Now we see that the people, previously we've seen how the people of the earth, when all these calamities were coming upon them, they didn't repent and turn to God. They cried out and said, let the rocks fall on us that we may be hidden from him. But here in Jerusalem when this happens... The rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. So this perhaps is the beginning of the opening of the eyes of the Jewish people to the truth. First of all, about the beast or the Antichrist, whom up to this point they think is their Messiah. Don't forget that, folks. First and foremost, why is he referred to as the Antichrist? Because he will be recognized by the Jewish people as their Messiah for the first three and a half years of the tribulation. And many other people throughout the world, to the degree that three and a half years in, he's going to demand that the whole world reject God and every other false god and worship him only. So this is perhaps the beginning of the opening of the eyes of the Jewish people to the truth about the beast and the realization that Jesus truly is the Messiah. And by the way, as we mentioned before, this is God's Number one goal in all this is to restore his people, the people of Israel, the Jewish people, the apple of his eye. And as I was telling one of the guys before the service, I always like to go around saying, hey, Gentile men, but we're not Gentiles anymore. We've been grafted in. Do you know that? See, as I mentioned maybe last week, week before, the term Gentile has to do with a non-believer, with a pagan. But we are not pagans anymore. We are born again children of God and we've been grafted into God's family. Let's stand. Let's pray. Father God, thank you, Lord, for your word. It is awesome. It's amazing. It's incredible. We learn so much every time we study it together, and even as we study individually, you promised that you would give us the Holy Spirit to teach us and lead us into all truth. Thank you, Lord, for that wonderful, glorious promise that you are so faithful to keep Lord, you said your word would not return void. All we have to do is open our hearts and minds to your truth. Lord, we saw today how the people of this planet became enraged by your truth, but we ask that you would help us, Lord, to love your truth. Lord, you told us in 1 Thessalonians that the people in these last days would come under a great...